Greetings, friends. This is Dr. Mark Sharona, and I want to welcome you to The Edge Podcast, where all things theological, psychological, spiritual, and cultural will be explored so that you and I might understand the times and know what to do about them. Enjoy. Well, friends, I'm delighted today to have with me two preeminent scholars in uh, the church and they are with me to share some thoughts with us on the issues that are tied to evangelicalism, Christian nationalism, and some of the controversies we're facing and how we are to approach even the political arena and some of the dynamics of what have been unfolding of late. One of my guests is a professor at Mount St. Mary's in Emmitsburg, Maryland. He is one of the two public theologians that we'll be sharing today and that is Scott Coley. And the other is Chris Green, who's a dear friend who is a public theologian and serves at Southeastern University as well as at Ridgemont University Graduate School in Atlanta, Southeastern here in Lakeland, Florida. And I'm delighted to have both of them on. Gentlemen, why don't you take a moment? Chris, you can start first, introduce yourself to the audience. Not that those in my podcast audience would know you, but go ahead and then Scott, you can follow suit. Yeah, as you said, I'm a professor. Um, I work at Southeastern primarily in, in Lakeland, but I live in Tulsa with my family and have a, a few other gigs, including teaching pastor role at a church here in Tulsa. And it just, we've just started an institute for theology and philosophy related to the diocese where I serve. And so I'm, I'm heading up that as well. Scott. Uh, hi, I'm Scott Coley. Um, I, sorry, there's a bit of noise in the back of my office here. Um, I'm Scott Coley. I am lecturer of philosophy at Mount St. Mary's University, where I also serve as director of the Global Encounters Program. And my work focuses primarily on moral epistemology, which asks questions about moral truth and moral knowledge, and then political philosophy and philosophy of religion, sort of at the intersection of those subjects. And I'm currently working on a book that deals with um, justice and politics in the context of American evangelicalism broadly. All right, so why don't we right there, Scott, let's start with the whole issue of moral truth and justice in relationship to evangelicalism and just start the conversation, express what you would like to see as a, a, a trajectory for that conversation to flow in. Great. So there are broadly two different views of what justice is, it's going back to say the Republic Right. Um, and these two different views of what justice is have sort of weaved their way through the Western imagination and, and shown up in various uh, capacities for the last two plus millennia. Right. One view of justice, which we might call political realism. One view of justice says um, there's no objective truth about justice. There's no objective truth about what people deserve and what we owe to each other. Uh, so justice really is whatever the law says. Well, whatever the sovereign says, right? And in our case, that's the law, at least ostensibly the law is sovereign, right? So the political realist would say that justice is whatever the law says it is. There's no other standard uh, for what justice is. So what else could it be other than what the law says? The law says what people deserve. 
And so that's what they deserve. But the other view of what justice is, is what we might call moral realism. And moral realism says that uh, there is objective truth about what people deserve and what we owe to each other. And our laws, insofar as our laws reflect that truth, our laws are just. And insofar as our laws fall short of that objective standard, our laws are unjust. And so naturally, the moral realist says that the purpose of politics, and you know, government is about maintaining the rule of law, and politics is about deciding how the government's going to operate, what the law is going to be, and so on. So the moral realist says the purpose of politics is to influence government in such a way that our laws reflect the objective truth about what people deserve and what we owe to each other, justice, right? We want to have just laws rather than unjust laws. Um, and I suppose what I'd want to say to evangelicals broadly off the bat is that I'm afraid we've been approaching politics for at least the last 40 years or so as political realists. We've, we've been approaching politics in such a way that, uh, I'm, and I'm speaking here of you know, the moral majority, a Christian coalition, this kind of uh, approach. The approach has been, um, let's, let's enact laws and public policies that define justice in ways that are advantageous to us, economically or otherwise. And I think that's misguided. I think that we should be approaching politics with an eye toward bringing our laws and public policies into conformity with the objective truth about what people deserve and what we owe to each other. In other words, I think our political considerations should be guided by justice. Chris, you want to weigh in on that? Oh, yeah, I, I think that's, that's right. The, the opportunism, the, what Scott just called the political realist approach politically realist approach that evangelicals have taken in the last generation or so. I mean, I, th I think it, it is deeply problematic because it, it betrays much of what they themselves would say, or we, would, we ourselves would say we believe. And I, I think you can see some of that, the way that that plays out in the way scripture is engaged, for example, right? I mean, that while Scott was talking, I was thinking that even though evangelicals, of course, appeal to scripture as authoritative, it is essentially a way of a politically realist way of reading the text, right? That only takes seriously those passages that play to our advantage as a group, right? And, and those are the voices that dominate. Of course, Scott would agree with me here, I'm sure, there are wonderful exceptions to this, right? Some major figures, as well as, of course, innumerable nameless figures. But predominantly, I think that's what evangelicalism has become. And, and I'm, I'm not sure that it hasn't always been that way. I think it's just more obvious now for, for various reasons. I was talking with um, a friend the other day, a, a, a pastor, and, and I said, I, I think that it's not that evangelicalism has changed. It's that the culture around evangelicalism has shifted enough that the contrast makes it obvious, or at least more obvious. So I'm not sure that there ever really was a moral realism at play. I think it might've always been political realism. It just wasn't necessary because the American culture broadly was Protestant, right? At least in a de facto way, a white Protestant culture that 
um, made it so that evangelicals, because they were such a large and because they already shared the dominant ethos, they didn't have to show their hand. Um, and I don't mean that in some cynical way. I, I just I think that the failure may be may be really deep, may run all the way run all the way down. I think that's right. I think that's right. I think that um, as uh, let's start with say the I mean really the civil rights movement is what gave rise to a kind of explicitly self-serving mode of political engagement. So prior to the civil rights movement, of course, there were very, I mean, there were various social reform movements ongoing, but the civil rights movement was where you really saw a lot of it uh, burst out above the surface. And you saw different groups assert uh, their, their due, what they were due. And the reaction from many in white evangelicalism was, okay, we're going to assert what we are due or what we think we're due or really, really what we want. We're gonna assert what we want. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, the only thing I really have expertise in here is the history of Pentecostalism in America on this issue. And you, it's it, what Scott is describing is exactly what's happening around the civil rights movement, right? So that you, you can see more and more voices, le voices of leaders, denominational heads, major evangelists, pastors of large churches who are, you know, saying outright, you know, this, these concerns of the civil rights movement are, are going to lead to our extermination. They're going to lead to us being marginalized and replaced. I mean, you, you could see the, you know, I, I've shared this with you before, um, Bishop Mark, but there was an Assemblies of God pastor who went to MLK's funeral in Atlanta and then wrote about it for the denominational magazine. And the most horrifying part of it is he says, you know, he's, he's deeply troubled by MLK and how he claims to be nonviolent, but in fact, he's responsible for all of this violence that has come. And this pastor is fretting about, you know, how do we end this, right? How do, how do we bring this violence to an end? And he says that a scripture comes to mind for him, and it's from First Timothy, let slaves keep their place, essentially. Let slaves honor their masters and everything so that the name of God is not blasphemed. That's the, the text that comes to his mind. And he says, when he remembers this text, he realizes why we're in the case we're in, right? So he doesn't connect the dots, but it's pretty obvious what he's saying, right? That he's, he's at MLK's funeral. The text that comes to mind for him is let slaves keep their place. And the reason America is in the trouble it's in is that slaves have not kept their place, right? And then he ends the article by saying, and this, this has to be one of the most ironic statements in human history. <laughs> he ends the article by saying, if there's any hope for America, we have to act now. And we have to not minister directly to Blacks. We have to find Black ministers who will represent the gospel faithfully for us to them. Of course, people we're handpicking, of course, and training. But then the last line of the article is, but what we do, we must do quickly, which is almost word for word, the words that Jesus says to Judas, what you do, do quickly. And I think for me that, I mean, there are 
dozens and dozens and dozens of examples. But that to me is, is a kind of stark illustration of this point, right? That the, the sense that America is coming apart and it's the fault of those that we subjugated, right? And if we don't act quickly, we're going to lose what is ours. And then just the betrayal of his own conscience, I think, in that line from Judas. I mean, it is astounding to me every time I, every time I remember it. Abraham Kuyper is alive and well. Uh, Scott? Oh, yeah. So, so to this point about fragmentation, right? Um, it's, uh, it's funny, as you were talking uh, about the civil rights movement and the reactions to it, um, what we need if we want, if we don't want to be fragmented is precisely the opposite of what you're just describing. I mean, that would be one way to achieve a false kind of unity, right? Uh, but of course, that's what—that's not what we want, right? So, so um, I like to think of it in terms of integrity. So, um, and and I would um, start by sort of uh, backing up to what what is integrity in an individual, right? So, to have integrity is to be integrated, right? And things are integrated when they fit together. And so, uh, for an individual to have integrity is something like this. Um, I inhabit a variety of social roles in my life. I am parent, spouse, teacher, friend, colleague, etc. Right, um, and uh, I have integrity when I inhabit each of those social roles in a way that is consistent with how I occupy all of the others. Right, and to the extent that I inhabit one social role in a way that cannot be reconciled to my behavior in another social role, I lack integrity, I am fragmented, right? Um, and the, the opposite, the, the polar opposite at the extreme of integrity, of course, is uh, disintegration, disintegration or fragmentation, where I just move from one social role to the next without any underlying continuity or any sense of the self who occupies these various social roles and how these social roles might come together in order to form the, inform the narrative of my life. Right? Well, just as an individual can be uh, integrated or fragmented, so can a political community. Right? And our political community at the moment appears to be just a collection of special interest groups asserting what they want. And so although we share a patch of earth, we do not in any real sense share uh, or, or any, in any, I suppose in any metaphorical sense, we, we, we don't actually share a horizon. <laughs> Right, we, we we're all in the same place, but we're not we're not looking to the same sorts of goals. And what we need is for some of those folks to say, you know what, what these what the folks in this other special interest group are urging is actually it's actually what they deserve. And so we're going to take up common cause with them, and we're we're going to share a horizon with them, and we're going to say, uh, yeah, we're going to aim at justice. Now we can argue about. Uh, what the, the details of what justice requires, sure. But our focus should be laws and public policies that give people their due. Yeah. Yeah, another, another example jumps to mind for me um, from first things. So not the Pentecostal circles, but first things for those who don't know, you know it was a magazine led by Richard John Newhouse and uh, mostly Catholics, although it became a point of conversion, convergence for Catholics and evangelicals. And 
I want to be careful here because I think there there's there's been a lot, especially over the last four years, that has kind of undermined the integrity of anything that might have been attempted there. But I think there was always a problem in that project, or at least always the the risk of a of a deep betrayal of its commitments. And I remember kind of the first time I noticed this was an article. I can't remember what year it was. This is off the top of my head, but Michael Novak wrote a piece about having been to Israel and standing on the Mount where the Sermon on the Mount was given, having this realization that these things could be taken away from us by Islamist terrorists, right? That if we did not strike hard against Iran, that Iran and, and other radical Islamists would destroy Israel and in destroying Israel would destroy our inheritance, right? So he talks about in this article, and again, I can't quote it exactly. It's been years since I've seen it, but he talks about how our love for the land of Israel, our love for these sacred sites like the Temple Mount or the Mount um, on which the sermon is given, that we have to be willing to act in ways that preserve those things. And he doesn't say we don't. He doesn't say we have to be politically realist, but but he is essentially. He's saying essentially that, you know, moral realism is good. Um, our, our Christian commitments are valuable, but if we really value them, we have to be willing to act in ways that are untrue to them. And that, I mean, of course, I don't think that's a new idea. I mean, I think there have been cynical Christians as long as there have been Christians, right? I mean, study the history of someone like Cyril of Alexandria, right? I mean, who's a crucially important theologian, but apparently by all accounts, a horrific human being and, and, a, and a destructive politician. But that said, I mean, we live here and now, and, and I do think there is something that's happened to middle-class white Christians, what, whatever their denominational affiliation, that has made it so that we are more or less saying out loud now that our Christian commitments have to be suspended in order to protect our Christian benefits or the benefits that come from a Christian culture. So I, I, I think it might be worth talking a bit about that because I don't, I, I, for me, this comes back to, as Christians, we're, we're called to the way of Jesus and anything that leads us to abandon that and leads us to abandon it brashly, where we say out loud, <laughs> we're abandoning it. I, I think needs to be confronted, and I don't think we can we can say in strong enough terms. I don't think we can overstate how horrifying it is that we've come to that place. That, again, not a, an aberrant figure here or there, not marginal figures, but mainline figures, are are saying this, and again, saying it out loud. And and it's not just the Al Molers of the world and the Michael Novaks of the world. It, it's right across the whole spectrum from Catholic to evangelical. So, so yeah, I'm, I'm not familiar with that particular uh, case, but I will say that I've noticed this uh, willingness to, how to put it, I, I guess, um, to set aside moral convictions in the defense of moral convictions Right. And when I, when, yeah, when I start, when I, when I 
I, I just, I have to say when I hear Christian uh, sort of, I guess, self-appointed spokesmen talking about politicians or policies doing stuff for Christians. At that point, I just, I can't make sense of that. I don't, I don't even know what that means, honestly. And so I, I would just like them to explain to me exactly what they think that is. Can you offer some specifics for our listening audience so that they can track with that? Sure. So I remember uh, watching the inauguration uh, sorry, not the inauguration. Uh, it was uh, an acceptance speech. I guess it was back in November, December of 2020 when uh, several states, had, the, the remaining states had sort of certified their results and there was that uh, outside gathering. And, uh, and I remember in then President-elect Biden's speech, he quoted or alluded to scripture in several places. And I just remember by being struck by the thought that it was really sort of refreshing to hear scripture used in, a, in public remarks without being attached to any kind of statement about hey, I'm doing stuff for Christians or here's what I'm going to do for Christians. And I just thought, well, that's, that's as it should be. We, it, uh, yes, Christianity is part of our uh, cultural, national heritage. And it's not as though it should be, you know, all references to Christianity should be effaced or removed from public view. I, 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 that would be inauthentic and, and just bad for a variety of reasons. That said, I don't think that the place of Christians in, in public life is to seek our own interests no. or, or aggrandize or support or endorse politicians or parties or platforms uh, because they promised to do stuff for us. Yeah. But there's, the, there's, I mean, there's so much that I'd like to say here. Part of this is there's a kind of pop capitalist understanding of morality, you know, so that old idea that the invisible hand of the market comes in and makes things right, right? So there is there is this, I think, in the evangelical imagination, and here I'm using evangelical very broadly here. I, I'm, I'm including Catholics, Pentecostals in, in that main, mainline Protestants in that category, because for me, what's happened in the last four to six years is pretty clear that evangelical is primarily a political category. That, that's how it functions. And that the beliefs and the commitments turn out to be code for political alliances, right? And again, I think to go back to the first things illustration, I think you, you saw that emerging there, that Catholics and evangelicals found political common ground and then worked on the theological common ground from that place, right? And that should have been, and probably was for people who were paying attention, a troubling foretaste of what was to come. But I think there's this idea, and, and, and again, I know there is this idea, I've had people say this to me, that the reason Christians should seek their own self-interest is that in the long run, that will benefit everyone else, right? So it's a, it's a kind of trickle-down morality, that if we can force our Christian commitments at a certain level and act in whatever way is necessary to get that done, 
even if we have to, you know, push Jesus aside for the moment, in the long run, everyone will benefit from that, right? So, I, I mean, to go back to what I know well, this is the way that Pentecostals, one of the ways in which Pentecostal leaders argued against the civil rights movement, that the civil rights movement thinks it's going to help these marginalized people, the black community in particular, but in the long run, it's going to harm them. So if we will seek our self-interest and establish society on our terms, then in the long run, whether they realize it now or not, then these people will actually be helped, right? So there's a way, there is a kind of deeply cynical notion that the only way to bring about Jesus' kingdom is to be willing to act in ways that are not like Jesus at all, right? That it, and if I am willing to do that, if I have you know, the, the, the wherewithal to suspend my morality long enough then in the long run, morality will win. I mean, it, it, I could go on forever about this, but it, it's basic to the American mythos, I think. And, you know, I think of a movie like Apocalypse Now, you remember Marlon Brando in one of his great roles playing Colonel Kurtz at the, at the end of the movie when we finally get to see him and he talks about what, what shifted for him. He talks about how this realization hit him like a diamond bullet between the eyes that he has to be willing to do anything even something monstrous in order to save people. And I think, I think that that is in the DNA of American consciousness, right? At least powerful American consciousness. We have to be willing to do whatever. And so one more illustration from, from film, the Christopher Nolan Batman movies. This is exactly what the Dark Knight is. That's what it represents. We have to have somebody who's willing to do the unspeakable so we don't have to face it. And in the long run, that's how we're going to make America great again and save the world for Jesus, right? So there's, there's a, a profoundly cynical and violent commitment here, or commitment to violence as a way of bringing about the good that we, we think we believe, right? And for me, again, I think there are just countless examples of this in our film as well as in our sermons and our you know, reports on the news or whatever else. So, so quick, quick disclaimer, since I, uh, since I work at a Catholic institution, I just want to be clear that nothing I'm saying or uh, n none of these views represent the official position of my employer naturally. Of course. Yeah. Um, and, and of course I take it, as implied, Chris, that when we're talking about evangelicals and Catholics and so on, we're talking about subsets of those traditions Absolutely. Uh, at this sort of domain of overlap, right? Because yep. we're broadly evangelicals. Absolutely, right? yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, yeah. Um, so, so that's probably obvious to the listener, but I just, I thought it was important to, to point out. Um, Chris, I think you're right to, to zero in on this sort of complex of views that are really internally inconsistent. And I, I put it this way, I think there are sort of three pillars to this uh, approach to politics that are, that are mutually incoherent. I think you can endorse any two of them, but when you try to put all three of them together, what you get is incoherence. And those three pillars are, are as follows. Uh, one is the idea that the good prosper, okay? And I, I sort of, I call this like the prosperity gospel light uh, because it doesn't promise you that you're going to have yachts, 
if you do the right thing. But, but the idea is that if you work hard and you do the right things, then your material conditions as, as a necessary result of that, your material, uh, the conditions of your material existence will be adequate. Right. Yep. And so the implication there is that if you're poor, you've done something wrong. Right. So that's one idea is that the good prospect. And of course we know from scripture, right. That if you, if you work hard and you do the right things that tends to produce certain kinds of results, but that's presupposing that you're not facing an unjust order of things. Right. 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 Okay. So the first idea is that the, the good prosper. The second idea is that God favors free markets, right? So unregulated free markets that, which that phrase itself is a bit nonsensical because an unregulated market is a knife fight, right? Right. Regulation is just laws. Okay. But the idea is we want as little regulation as possible, you know, just let competitive markets allocate resources. Yeah. And the final uh, bit in the thread there, which you emphasize is the idea that America has fallen into moral degeneracy. And if we would just uh, sort of make our way back to God, then things would be all right. Well, here's the thing about that, right? Um, Moral degenerates don't value the right kinds of things. That, that's what makes them morally degenerate. Right. Yeah. <laughs> By definition, um, yeah. And the free market, it doesn't care what people should value. It cares what people do value. Do value. Yeah. Yeah. So when you've got a society where the consumers in the free market are a bunch of moral degenerates, what you're going to end up, end up with is allocations of resources that reflect really bad values. Yeah. Yeah. So pornographers are going to get rich. Yep. And, and public school teachers are going to be poor. Yeah. And, and so the idea that you can take a society that struggles with moral degeneracy and allocate resources entirely by means of competitive markets, and somehow the good are going to prosper because they do the right things. Well, it's just nonsense. It's nonsense. Yeah. Yeah, I fully agree. And, and, and actually, I mean, it, it goes back to uh, Plato says, look, if you, if you allow your society to be governed by its appetites. Yeah. Well, and, and, uh, Bishop, I'm sure you're wanting to ask a redirecting question, but I, I do think that, again, using the terms the way that I am, and I, I, Scott, I appreciate you making that clarification, because I, I, th- I think that we need to be careful here about how we identify these movements. And, and I want to keep reiterating, there are all kinds of wonderful exceptions to this. I mean, I, I, there, there is always a minority report, those prophetic voices in, in every generation who are speaking drawing us back to the way of Jesus. And so I, I think, you know, I, I don't want to obscure that either, but in terms of just diagnosing the problem right now, like getting a sense of what has gone wrong and, and how do we confront it? I think part of our problem is we, and here I'm talking again, broadly in, about evangelicals in that political sense, we think simplicity is a criterion for truth. The truer something is, the simpler it is, right? And what we mean by simple is whatever makes the most immediate sense to me, whatever's the least troubling and challenging for me personally. And then that gets tied up with an aversion to pain and an addiction to effectiveness, right? To outcomes that, that are measurable. Numbers of people in our churches, the, the amount of money that's flowing to our ministry or, or whatever else, right? And part of our problem, and this goes back to one of the first comments Scott made about integrity, is that 
and, and I wish we had time to talk about this at length, because I think that part of what we're addressing here is the problem of conscience that's malformed. So one of the issues with integrity talk, and I, and I completely agree with it, but one of the problems with it is that integrity can also be, be another name for just self-reference, right? And, and I think you saw this, and again, there was a lot of good that came from this, and I don't want to dismiss any of the good, but one of the warning signs, I think, of the, the movement, oh, what, were, what were they called? You know, they met in it was a men's movement. It was the largest thing going promise in the 90s. Keep, promise keepers? Yeah, promise keepers, right? All of this talk about integrity. I, I started to realize this then, although it took me years to find the right language for it. It was actually reading Aquinas that helped me see what was happening with our promise keepers movement. Because there was a lot of talk about integrity, which I think is good if your conscience is rightly formed. But if you're true to yourself when your conscience is not rightly formed, then you might avoid disintegration, but only by violence against others, right? So what's happened in our circles is we've had people formed, their consciences formed in, in groups that are designed to keep them from ever confronting difference, anything that might truly challenge them. So then the commitment to integrity is really just code for commitment to the in-group commitment to keeping things the way they are as long as they can be the way they are and doing whatever we have to do including betraying Jesus to keep other people from violating the dynamic and so I think that weirdly enough we have to be willing to let to think about holiness before we can think about integrity Right. And I think that to talk rightly about integrity is to talk about integrity for people whose consciences are formed maturely and are formed faithfully. And I think Aquinas understood this, right? That if you, if you have a group of people whose consciences are malformed, then they are morally degenerate, even if they're true to their morality. And that's part of where we are, is that people feel moral, but they've been shaped, many of us have been shaped in ways of living that are not concerned about the other person. They're not concerned about the neighbor. They're not concerned about those who are most in need. And so it's, I think there are some people who are cynical actors who, who say, yes, I know this is what Jesus says, but we can't do it. But I think a lot of people, a lot of people that I love and live closely with, they really don't see, they don't feel the dissonance. It's not even cynical for them. Like their, their conscience is so poorly formed and, and that could be because it's undeveloped or because they were fed lies or both. Um, I, I don't think there's a way forward without a call to the otherness of God, right? To the, what, what I'm calling holiness here. So I'd love to hear your, your thoughts about that. Oh, sure. Yeah. So, so I would say to put it in sort of philosophical terms, uh, integrity is a necessary condition for moral goodness, but it's not a sufficient condition. You can be integrated around something that, well, I mean, we might debate the extent yeah. to which one could actually be integrated around, uh, you know, whether it's sustainable or not. Yeah, right? I agree. Yeah. Um, but, but your point's well taken. Yes, yes, yes. You can fool yourself into, th into thinking that you're integrated. Yeah. Uh, um, and, and you might, to some extent, be integrated uh, around something that isn't, uh, you know, that a set of lies that sort of rely on excluding others. And ironically... Um, I, you know, I'm not an expert on this, but I've read several sort of historians of recent evangelicalism and sociologists and so on 
who point to the decline of the Promise Keepers movement uh, as sort of beginning when they started to focus on issues of race. Race. And, and uh, that's a great I, point. Yeah. That's very a true. great point. Uh, very, very true. Very much a part of its history. Um, so let me, I'm thinking now as a pastor and the people sitting in our pews um, that we minister, at least that I minister to on a weekly basis, um, there are certain realities that they have been framed in where they wouldn't even know necessarily if they're not taught about a formed or a deformed or a malformed conscience. And many of them might even say, well, I thought conscience was the voice of God, mm. uh, which is, again, just another indication of how poorly formed in terms of spiritual formation the American evangelical church is. Mm. But why don't you both just comment on that in terms of the formation of conscience, where we've come from or where we are, and how do we recover that? Why don't you go first, Chris? Yeah, and, and I'll, I'll, I'll spell it out as a bit of a narrative, just so you so people can hear kind of why I'm saying what I'm saying. So I, I, I had the blessing slash curse of being raised in a very small town in a very small church that was, you know, I can now realize sectarian and cultish. But of course, they understood themselves as the true people of God, right? And I just was strange enough that they they ended up throwing me and my family out and so i i had this experience right as i was becoming an adult and of having been inside of a group and having my conscience shaped by that and then being forced out of that group and forced to recalibrate like what what does what is up and down right and left what are good and evil what do these things mean i remember in college having this, and I'm 18, 17, 18 years old, and having this realization that I can't trust anything that I was taught, like anything, even the things that I'm sure somehow are true, how I was taught them can't be true. And so one of, this is a silly dimension of it, but it'll make the point. I, the church I grew up in was holiness, that's what they called themselves. And so they were, you know, against movies, television, going to sporting events, so on. So I, I not only was raised in a small town and a small church, but I was also required to go to a small school, a Christian school, in order to protect me from the, the wickedness that's in the world, right? And we, the churches I grew up in, that one of the signs of faithfulness was the smallness of your congregation, right? So as I've told you this before, Bishop, the the, the holier someone was understood to be, the fewer people who could live up to it. So the pastor who had 12 people in his church, this is a real, real story. The man who had 12 people in his church was the pinnacle of success because he had figured out how to be so faithful that almost no one could, could, could manage it, right? So that, that's the way I was shaped. And when I went to college, having been thrown out, I knew that was wrong, but my conscience hadn't caught up to it yet. So I... I had this realization, and, and we could unpack this, it would take a lot of time. I had this realization that I could not trust my own feelings of guilt, primarily because I knew I wasn't feeling guilty for things I should have. I knew that 
I'm doing things that I know are wrong and I feel no guilt. And I'm doing things that I know are not wrong and I do feel guilt, right? So, you know, I'm 17 or 18 years old. And of course I don't have the capacity to, to manage those things. Thankfully, there were some wise women and men around me who did help, mostly, mostly women in that case. But eventually I started reading theology, right? And when I did, one of the first things that really, really shook me was Dietrich Bonhoeffer's account of conscience, in which Bonhoeffer says, Christ is our conscience. And he's writing in the context of having seen all of these German Christians, and many even in the confessing church, who think they're being true to themselves, but they're being false to Christ, right? And so I, I kind of had a few years where I realized the way to God lies through the refutation of your own conscience, right? So there's a passage in John, two passages in scripture, and I, and I will hurry. One is in John, he says, um, if our hearts condemn us, that does not make us guilty. God's voice, God is greater than our hearts. And God says that we are reconciled, right? So we set our hearts at ease, right? So John is saying, there's, there's what God says of you, and then there's what your heart says of you. And you have to be willing to trust what God says about you instead, right? And then there's a passage in, in Corinthians where Paul tells the Corinthians, I, I do not feel guilty. My conscience does not condemn me, but that doesn't make me innocent. No one judges me. I don't even judge myself. We have to wait on the coming judgment of the Lord, right? That the Lord will judge all of us. So for, for a few years, that's where I was, right? That conscience is just utterly unreliable because it's so malformed. And that had been my experience, right? But then when I started reading Aquinas, I realized that there's, there's another dimension to this talk about conscience. And that is no one can live in defiance of their conscience for long because it, it, it leads to what Scott has, has rightly called disintegration. You can't distrust yourself that deeply all the time without coming apart, right? Like it will break you. And I started to experience that. I started ex after years of living with so much cognitive dissonance and, conf and conflict, internal conflict, that there has to be some way of making peace with yourself without trusting that your voice is God's voice. And without, that there is, a, there is the possibility of integration rooted in the holiness of God rather than simply self-reference. And, and, and that's why I'm saying it was reading Aquinas that helped me see, okay, what I need is a deeply formed, healthy conscience, right? A conscience that is in touch with the otherness of God and the otherness of the neighbor. And, and in that case, I can be an integrated person. I can, I can be whole in that sense. So that's my kind of personal story. And, and the last thing I'll say, and then let Scott respond. I mean, because I lived that, of course, all along the way, I was hypersensitive to that around me, right? And that's why I'm saying what I'm saying. Again, with all due respect and all the nuance that needs to be there, I think I'm far from alone. I think most of us who've been raised in this country in Christian circles, we've been socialized into something that's called Christianity, but isn't actually true to Christ. And so it makes this talk about integrity and morality really difficult because we feel as if we are being moral when in fact we're being false to morality as it actually is right and, and so i i think that that makes our situation incredibly thorny difficult to, to unpick so i think i think that 
a lot of American evangelicals approach morality and ethics in something like the following way. We've got a set of established proof texts and what they mean. And that's what we're supposed to do in whatever situation. And I think that the way that this even became possible has to do with what modernity has done to our sense of truth and how we come to understand truth. So um, kids are taught in school, and I could run through the history of philosophy and how this came to be, but I won't bore you with those details. Um, kids are taught in school, middle school and high school, although they don't really need to be taught it, but they are, I mean, because they just intuitively think about things this way, but it's part of the curriculum uh, that all declarative statements can be divided into two categories, one of which is fact and the other of which is opinion. Facts are empirically verifiable and objectively true. Opinions are subjective and not empirically verifiable. Well, uh, which of those categories are moral claims going to fit into? Uh, well, setting aside, uh, you know, uh, the way that evangelicals in particular tend to approach these things, the most natural way to regard morality is to put it into the category of opinion, subjective, not very, because it's not, because morality, it, it's, uh, you know, look, I mean, a lot of people disagree. There's no procedure. You can, like water freezes at 32 degrees Fahrenheit. That's a, that's objectively true fact at sea level, right? And somebody doesn't believe you, you say, well, look, we'll take some water to sea level. We'll cool it to 32 degrees. We'll watch it freeze, right? That there's a procedure there. Well, somebody doesn't think stealing is wrong. What procedure do you follow? You just seem to disagree. Okay. So then uh, sort of evangelical Christians come along and they say, well, there's objective moral truth. And they don't have another category apart from facts and opinions, right? They don't have a category for, and this, this modernity has done this to us, yeah? And so there's no category for stuff that's objectively true, but isn't empirically verifiable. And rightly, we want to put morality in, in the category of stuff that's objectively true. And we don't have another category other than facts that are empirically verifiable. So where's our empirical verification? Uh, empirical verification? Well, we, just, we go to the book, right? We go to the Bible. Well, what does the Bible mean? Well, it means what preacher says it means, right? And so that's where I get my morality. And so there's actually, there's actually no conscience at all. I mean, we've just done away with potentially the most difficult aspect of yeah. morality, which is, which is uh, uh, working out what we ought to do with fear and trembling. Like, like look, at how, look at how we look at the binding of Isaac. I mean, the way it's taught in a lot of evangelical yeah. spaces is, is Abraham did this really hard thing that he really didn't want to do, mm -hmm. which is all true, but that's not the point of the story. Right, right. Right? Yeah. <laughs> the, the point of the story is... Uh, well, well, gee, I, I mean, what would you think if you thought you heard the voice of God audibly telling you to sacrifice your only son that you had waited 100 years for, that you'd hung all your hopes on? I mean, you tell yourself you were crazy, right? Yeah, this is what, I mean, and, there, and, and I have lots of problems with what Lewis did with it. But when C.S. Lewis in his Abolition of Man talked about, you know, that, that famous line about, you know, we, we're men without chests. This is, this is what he's talking about. Mm 
and I think he got a lot of it wrong, but I think he's right about this, right? That we, modernity literally cut our heart away from us. It, it stripped us of conscience. It made it impossible, virtually impossible to discern what you're, what you're saying so well, Scott, that, that something can be morally binding, morally real, but un, unverifiable in any procedural way. And so it throws us back into a panic. I mean, I'll, I'll name two things. One is if you study a little bit about the way that people have theorized about revulsion, it's revealing, right? So um, Martha Nussbaum, Leon Cass, and others have talked about revulsion. And one of, one of the ways, so in, in a culture that doesn't know that conscience has to be formed and that conscience has to be formed in this communion with truth as something distinct from fact or, or opinion, then you start to rely on your basest instincts as authoritative. So this is the argument that Cass made years ago against, um, I think it was stem cell research, but it was, it was some, something like that. It was like stem cell research. But very quickly, people brought up the ways in which you could use that same argument against racial integration, racial intermarriage, or against homosexuality, or, or whatever else, right? Because you still have the same basic problem. Your sense of revulsion is formed. Like you learn to hate things. There's no kind of universally innate revulsion to all that is wrong, right? You're going to see things that are wrong that are not going to revulse you, re repulse you, or, or drive you to revulsion. And you're going to see things that are good that still somehow trigger your gag reflex. And so we can't trust that either. And I think what a lot of evangelicals have done have tried to marry that kind of basis instinct, what makes me the most uncomfortable has to be wrong, to a simplistic, politically realist reading of scripture as a way of trying to determine how they know what's true, right? And it, it leads to bad reading. I mean, so one dimension of this for me is we're just bad at reading text and we're especially bad at reading the Bible. I remember in Obama's, I think it was his second term, right? When bin Laden was assassinated and Obama came and, and gave the news to the nation. Although I think it was the rock who broke the news on Twitter um, somehow, which is a wild story. But anyway, Obama comes out and shares, you know, with, with the nation and that, that what has happened. And my social media feed like lit up with evangelical pastors rejoicing in this. And I was young enough and brash enough that I, I pushed back and said, you know, you know, Bin Laden obviously was, a, was an evil man who needed to be brought to justice, but assassination is never sufficient for justice to be done. And rejoicing in his death as if justice has been done means we've forgotten people we should be caring about. It isn't just, we killed the man who threatened us. And anyway, I, the, the, I got more pushback on that than anything I've said in the last four years. And I, I mean, I've had people threaten to come to my house and, and harm me and my family. So it's not, I don't say that lightly. It was ferocious backlash. And of course, a lot of it was tied to biblical stories, right? So one of the things that a lot of people brought up to me is, you know, scripture rejoices when the wicked are destroyed. And they brought up, you know, the story like 
the, the song when Pharaoh is cast down into the sea. But again, that just comes from bad readings of those stories. Right? And it's, it's a, a kind of search um, and destroy mission, right? Where you find a passage of scripture that seems to confirm what your basest instincts tell you. And then that is somehow a seal of truth. And so I, I think in terms of, if we start to think about how do we change this, I think part of it is we have to help people be comfortable with disruption. We have to, they have to be in deep communion with otherness and we have to read scripture better. <laughs> we have to learn to read these texts with, with more care. Not, not those aren't sufficient for everything, but I think that that's, that's a beginning point. I, I, and I think there's, uh, I, I remember that moment, by the way, that you, that you, uh, well, not your involvement, Chris, but I, re I remember uh, I was watching a baseball game. I was home from grad school, uh, hanging out with my parents, watching a baseball game, and they were started chanting USA, USA. And I just remember, I mean, setting aside whether the, the actions that were taken were morally appropriate, which I think it's complicated, right? Um, just that w we can look at that kind of reaction. And, and I, I think that's a separate question, right? No, that's um, right. That's yeah. exactly right. Yeah. And, and I, my, my sense was, was exact, exactly what you described, like that, whoa, hold on, folks. Um, I, I, think, I think there's an underlying attitude in the way that we approach scripture uh, that, that, as you say, seek and destroy, and that's a good way of describing it. You know, it's like we're, we're proof texting used to be a pejorative term. Uh, and I, 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 I get, I don't know if that's changed or if the people who are doing it deny that that's what they're doing, yeah. but I don't know. I mean, it's, it's, it's bizarre. And I think, I think if you're reading scripture and it is scripture is confirming what you think about people who are different from you more than it is changing how you view yourself, yeah. then you're just not reading scripture correctly. That's right. I can, I can say that for sure. Yeah. And I think, I think, uh, I get, I mean, this is sort of, a, I'll try, I'll, I'll be brief. This is a hobby horse of mine, but, but when, when preachers stand up in church and they just shout and get all red in the face about those people out there, it's just a, what, what good are you doing, man? Like what, what is the point of anything that you're doing? Right. Is it, is it just entertainment? Because yeah, I mean, we can all sit around in church and talk about how bad those people are out there. I don't know. I don't know what we're doing. I don't know what purpose that serves. Uh, I don't know what purpose that could possibly serve. But I know it's not what church is supposed to be about. Right. Well, I, th I think it, I think the purpose it serves, unfortunately, is the socialization I was talking about earlier. I, I know a purpose it serves. I, I don't know what they but, would say, but, but go ahead. Sorry. No, sorry. that's right. But the point you're making is is right. I mean, if they had to give an account for it, what are you, what do you think you're doing? I think, I think that would be, I mean, it'd be worthwhile if they were required to say, this is the purpose we think it's serving, right? I mean, we can all see what it's actually doing, but what do they think it's doing? I think that's right. So gentlemen, as we sum up, I, this, this is like, I would love to do a part two to this and we're gonna definitely have to do that. Um, when, um, when we think then about where we are 
right now in the current culture? What are, I'll give each of you, give me three things that you would think every Christian leader needs to begin to think about and act on based on everything we've shared. You go first, Scott. I, I went first last I've time. got a colleague next door who's talking oh, okay. quite loud. Why don't you go first and maybe that'll run its course. <laughs> okay, good enough. Good enough. So three, three things. I, I think the heart of it is return to Jesus, right? Okay. Look, look to Jesus, look to him and listen to him. Right. I mean, this, this, the, the text on Sunday, the, the Sunday past in the lectionary we use was the story of the transfiguration, right? The disciples go up the mount, they see Jesus transfigured, the cloud descends, the father says, this is my son, the beloved, listen to him. And I think that's, that's where we are. I think we're in a moment where we need our attention turned back to Jesus and not Jesus. We imagine, I mean, the students I have, I don't know what's true for Scott, but in my students and, the, and my friends, my family, there's the Jesus they imagine who has virtually nothing to do with the Jesus of the gospels. And so when I say turn back to Jesus, I mean, specifically turn back to Jesus as he is narrated in the gospels, like not, not turn back to, you know, a figmented Jesus, right? So, and what I mean by that, here's, here's the most obvious example of it. The Jesus we imagine is a, a simple teacher who's always accessible and um, kind of always talking in ways that make immediate sense. But if you read the gospels, of course, that's never true, right? Like Jesus never says anything that anyone responds to well, right? They either say, we have no idea what you're talking about, or they say, we know what you're saying and we're going to kill you for it. Like those are the only responses Jesus gets. And so I, I would say the most important thing, the central thing is focus your attention on Jesus. I think the second thing I would say is learn to pray other than from your own heart. Don't, don't just pray what comes to mind for you. And I think that this, I, I would suggest two things. One, Pray liturgically. Pray prayers you did not write, that you did not think up. And, and also pray wordlessly. Pray under the direction of someone who's deeply rooted in prayer. And again, I don't think these things in and of themselves are sufficient, but I do think that they're necessary and that if we're open to God, they, they can be transformative. So I would say, turn your attention to Jesus. Pray differently. Don't just pray your own thoughts, because that is, it so easily turns into self-dialogue, talking to yourself, thinking you're talking to God, and hearing from yourself, thinking you're hearing from God in my circles. And the last thing I would say is, read scripture, listening to voices from outside your circles. Don't just read scripture, read scripture with people who don't live where you live, they don't drive the car you drive and attend the church you attend, right? Like find, and, and some of that can be, you know, find books, right? I mean, read, um, um, I just this week came on Madame Guion's commentaries on the Bible, right? So she's a you know French mystic who's, you know, considered a heretic, 
but reading scripture with her, right, is is the kind of thing I'm saying, right? Find ancient figures or contemporary ones from another part of the world and and look at those texts with them from their perspective, right? So what I'm saying essentially is that for conscience to be rightly formed, we have to encounter the holiness of God as the otherness of God and the otherness of our neighbor or, or, or we'll, it will just be self-referential. Everything we do will be will cycle back right into uh, everything we've given out, right? And so I think that the only way that I can see that breaks that is to turn away, turn, turn to God and neighbor in Jesus, pray differently and read scripture differently. I would say three takeaways that's, that sort of sum up uh, points emphasized here, I would say, stop whining, uh, stop proof text, uh, stop proof texting, and stop seeking your own advantage. That's it. I, mean, I like it. We, sh we should have we should have placards made. Say those again. Stop whining. Stop whining. Stop proof, proof texting and stop seeking your own advantage. Powerful. Okay, guys, I've got three more for each of you. So and I'm, I'm, I'm good with doing a part two, by the way. I'm, that's, I'm down. All right, great. Well, we won't do it today, but we definitely need to do it. So, um, and I owe you both dinner. So um, we'll, we'll, we'll make sure you get to take your wives to a really nice restaurant. I know quite a few in Maryland. Tulsa, uh, you know, is not quite known for its restaurants, but I know <laughs> quite a few in the D.C. area. So, um, but um, let's just real quick, the three most impactful wells you guys have or continue to drink from and that can be personal or collective the three wells scott oh i was hoping i'd get a, a moment to think about this all right chris um, you can you can think about it go ahead chris <laughs> I, I assume you mean resources yeah resources like, yeah 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 uh so theologically you know, for me, it's the church fathers. I mean, church fathers and and mothers. And I'm I'm not just thinking about, you know, the the first few hundred years, but I mean the, the church tradition, right? Reading, reading Teresa or Guillaume or Benedict. Maximus. I mean, th th those in in part because it's because it's so different from what I've known, right? I mean that that. I've learned to love the experience of reading something I don't understand. Just, just in for this sermon for Sunday, I was reading Maximus on the Transfiguration, and there's this line in Maximus that it runs like this: that the Lord, in revealing Himself, conquered the blessedness of His disciples. Conquered the blessedness of His disciples. And of course, that's utterly disorienting. I have no idea what that could even mean. So I thought that must be a translation issue, right? So I, I scrambling to find the, the, the original texts and other translations to try to see, you know, what, but no, it turns out that's exactly what Maximus is saying. And I'm still not entirely sure I understand everything he's trying to say, except I, I know it's this much at least, that 
because God is so re- he's he's using pseudo Dionysius's categories of cataphatic and apophatic theologies in arguing that the light of Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration, the Taboric light, is a light that overwhelms our limitedness. So what he's saying, in part, is that the disciples are happy to see this, right? That Peter says, it is good for us to be here. And Maximus says, because he doesn't yet understand what's happening. He's happy, but God's not done showing himself. And that what actually happens is as Christ continues to reveal himself, the happiness is conquered. That there's something beyond being happy in the presence of God that's needed, right? And and, and that that kind of sense of disorientation and then f- struggling to find reorientation. Um, I'm so grateful for that. I'm so, and, and I wouldn't be able to have that if I, if I weren't able to encounter, you know, men and women who are different. So that would be the first thing. The second thing is I've been reading lately Clarice Lispector, who's a, she was born in Ukraine. She's a novelist, short story writer, poet. She was, she passed away. But she was born in the Ukraine, but then raised in Brazil, writes in Portuguese. And just, I have no idea how I lived this long without knowing about her. She's astounding, right? And short story novels, the, the novel I just finished is called The Passion of G.H., about a woman who has an existential encounter with a cockroach. And it is incredible, right? So I guess this, in the broadest sense, her in particular, but just literature literature and film. And then the, the last thing I would say are conversations like this. I mean, I think, you know, Scott and I would never have known each other if it weren't for Twitter. And the, I, I'm, I'm great, even though, you know, one six for me was, I mean, I, I remember 9-11 so well. I was in Oklahoma City the day of the Murrow building bombing. My, our building shook when that bomb went off. The windows in our, in our classroom they didn't break, but they shook. And, but one six for me watching the insurrection, I, I've never had an experience like that in my life. And it was, it altered the way I think about how I need to be online. And so since then, um, I've, I've kind of stepped back from social media engagement just because I needed to kind of recalibrate. But all that said, I'm incredibly grateful for dialogues like this that that have been made possible by social media so i would say one one thing that i find enriching is studying uh judaism and the and the hebrew bible and uh really whatever i can get my hands on about christ's context um, and, uh, you know, Midrashic texts, um, that help to illuminate, uh, wh- wh- what's going on, um, in, you know, I mean, cause there's a lot of space and culture and language and time between my context and the context in which those, um, were authored, um, so that's that's one thing that I find really really enriching. Um, I read anything that so that's that's number one. Uh, number two, I read pretty much anything I can get my hands on about justice 
though I have a I have a toddler at the moment, uh, which I'll get to that in point three. So so the time the spare time I have for reading isn't, you know, a whole lot at the at the moment. But but um, yeah, I mean when you see, for example, Psalms where the author is rejoicing about the law. You know, I remember finding that you know, as a kid growing up in evangelical context, finding that weird. Yeah. Right. But when you, when you realize that the, the law is designed when you, when you realize what's actually going on. Yeah. Right. It's, it makes perfect sense. Right. I mean, it's, it's rejoicing in God's rage for justice and in in god's protection of the vulnerable yeah. um and I, I find that i find that expression of who god is to be very uh very enriching um and i find uh, so that's second point third point uh, i find conversations like this conversations with folks from varying backgrounds and contexts. I, I find that very enriching. Um, I find, and, and not, not in the sense that, you know, you sit back and go, oh, well, that's different. That's neat. You know, how cool. Yeah. I mean, it is, it is neat. It is cool. But you, you look, I mean, when, when two people come from two different contexts, there are going to be disparate strengths and weaknesses that naturally yeah. occur and through dialogue with with folks from different contexts be it racially ethnically economically geographically whatever it is uh, you're going it's going to naturally illuminate one's own weaknesses um and uh, and I, and in particular i find uh, engagement with folks from, from different generations to be really enriching. Um, al although there's a lot on social media that's awful, naturally, I have encountered folks from older generations who, who we, uh, speaking as a millennial here, we desperately need folks from older generations who get it. It's Absolutely. not that we don't respect our elders, right? Uh, we, we desperately want guidance. And it's, it's just that um, we have a sense of what's morally right. And we're not just going to take whatever guidance comes along because a lot of it's garbage. And we desperately need good, sound counsel. And that is really nourishing uh, when we find it. Uh, and I also find... Um, spending time with, with younger people, my students in particular, to be very um, sort of hope-inducing. Um, kids are really smart. <laughs> yeah. You know, I said this about my generation and now that we're getting into, I'm, I'm, I just moved through the youngest cohort of my generation is just now graduating and we're getting into the oldest cohort of the next generation. I said it about my generation and I'll say it about the generation that's coming along. These kids are smart and um, determined. 
and uh, and uh, in, in keeping with all of that, uh, I I have a I have a son who's about eighteen months old, and uh, spending time with uh, with him and with my most my wife uh, brings me a lot of joy and and hope for the future. Yeah, Bishop, can I share a quick story? Yeah, uh, since sure. he, he talked about his, is, is he your oldest, your son? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So my oldest is a daughter. She's 16. And so the other day uh, she, she's turned, she's, you know, of course I'm going to say um, the brightest kid I, I've ever met. And I mean, I, I adore her, but this transition, you know, we moved here from Florida she started a new school, turned 16, and has her first boyfriend. Right? So a lot of change and started her job. So she's working, boyfriend, new school. We're, all, we're in a new city, a lot of change. And, and there was some pretty difficult, I mean, she and I get each other pretty well, but there were some difficult exchanges. And the other day, um, really tough, really tough conversation in which I, I started to come up against my own struggles um, thinking back on my childhood and, and I, all of my life, all, all of my adult life, I've, I was afraid of having children because I wasn't sure I was up to being a parent. And it all kind of hit me in that moment. Like, okay, this is, this is why I was afraid because this is too much for me. I have no idea how to manage this. And so we, we, we take a break. We're like, listen, we can't talk anymore. I go back to the room and I'm just to my bedroom and I'm just looking for anything to kind of take my mind away. And I started, I, it, dear God, I have no idea why, but I clicked on, I was on Amazon prime. They have a Anthony Hopkins King Lear movie. And I've read quite a bit of Shakespeare, but believe it or not, I've never read Lear and I've never had a, a, a class on Shakespeare. So I didn't know anything about the story. And I decide, you know what, that's what I'm going to watch again, you know, make your judgments about me, but that's what I decided. <laughs> and of course, those of you who know the story know that it's a story about a father and his daughters and about the story opens with a conflict between the uh, father and his favorite daughter who happens to be his youngest because she won't flatter him and he disowns her and all hell breaks loose uh, read the play for yourself or watch the movie but i i'm in my bedroom i've been crying for a couple of hours i'm watching this i'm eight minutes and three seconds into the movie and i just i'm laughing and crying at the same time because i'm having this realization that <laughs> this is this is the human story, right? I mean, that, that we're brought back to this and, and that this, our, our children, our, our own flesh and blood, but also our students, the next generation, man, they're our best chance of seeing ourselves rightly and being truthful about ourselves. And I think not to get too heavy here, but man, for those who are leaders, and obviously those of us on this call are in some sense, but those who might be listening who are leaders in the evangelical world, man, like recognize yourself and what your kids challenge in you 
I mean, I, I felt it liberated me and it liberated me, not just in terms of how to engage her, but how to think about myself as kid and myself as son. So I, I you know, I'll stop with that. I, in fact, I've got a kid running in the room right now. I'll just, I'll just, I'll just add one thing to that quickly. We, we all know of pastors who have in their effort to lead a congregation lost their own children. Uh, and I'm afraid that the folks who insist on clinging to their political commitments, despite what younger folks are trying to tell them, they're in danger of doing precisely that and trying to lead a culture. They're going to lose uh, the next generation of, of believers. Not that we're all going to abandon the faith, but some will, some will. Um, but our faith just won't look, well, it's, it's not going to look a whole lot like, like what's, uh, what's on offer from older generations. That's already been established. The question is, are, are the, how much are the older generations going to help us form what our faith does look like? That, yeah, that's who, the question. Yeah, who was it that raised the question, um, it's not whether our children will have faith, but whether our faith will have children. Mm, wow. And um, as we close, gentlemen, this was very powerful. Chris, I would, from a psychological perspective, I would say you had a Jungian moment of synchronicity. Uh, we would call that providence or special providence in terms of yeah. King Lear. I don't know what King Lear is about, but that would certainly be a synchronous moment when the universe was was providing you with some feedback at a much needful time. And so the realization in Pentecostal world might be called the revelation. <laughs> absolutely. Oh, absolutely. I mean, as a Pentecostal, we would definitely call that, you know, a Holy Ghost moment. But this has been a really phenomenal, um, inspiring, enlightening, enlarging co uh, conversation. And we definitely need to pick up on part two. And we will do that. Uh, so gentlemen, thank you. I deeply appreciate it. And we will stay in touch. Thank you, Bishop. Great. Scott, good talking with you, man. Bless you guys. Thank you so much. It was a real pleasure.